You're listening to highlights from the creative process interview with Henrik Fixeius, Sweden's most famous mentalist as well as a best-selling author. This podcast is supported by the Anne Michalski Foundation. A mentalist is a kind of a magician and illusionist, and a mentalist uses whatever techniques is at that person's disposal to create the illusion of being able to read minds or being, being able to contact the supernatural and whatever. The only rule is that that part is fake, but then you can use techniques from magic or from stagecraft or from psychology. Mentalist is really someone who creates this illusion of having an almost supernatural ability. Having said that, today a mentalist sort of has come to mean something else, mainly due to popular culture. TV series like The Mentalist and so on. And now there's this understanding of a mentalist, someone being able to read body language and influence behavior. It sort of ties into it all. And I've had a lifelong passion with magic. And it started when I was like seven, because I was always interested in the question, what if? What if there's a color in the sky that we can't see? What if a handkerchief actually can vanish? What does that mean in terms of how the world works? So I would say that you are perfectly capable of manipulating or even controlling other people without knowing your own mind, without even being aware of that you're actually doing it. And I think that for most of us, that's exactly how it is. Just the spoken word, all communication is an attempt of influence and thereby manipulation and control. If I meet you in the street, I will put on a certain demeanor, I will smile, I will look you in the eye. And when I say hi, because I want to elicit a positive response from you, that also means that I have influenced your emotional state. Basically, you can't communicate anything to anyone without in some way influencing their emotional state or their thought or their behavior. Communication, influence, manipulation, it's all part of the package. Our brains are hardwired to tap into this, to react to this. That's why marketing works so well. But the even the most evil marketing strategies are using the same psychological triggers and mechanisms as we do in everyday speech. I would say that the only way to sort of be responsible about how much you influence and manipulate other people and in which direction is to know yourself and is to be aware of these techniques that you are subconsciously using. Because then and only then can you make the conscious choice of doing this, but not perhaps doing that. Because that sets people off in the wrong way and you don't want that. I think everyone has been in a room and they just felt that, oh, that meeting was weird or they, there was just something off and very often might as well be you that was actually the cause of it but you don't have a clue because you weren't aware of whatever was happening on a subconscious level in that situation. First of all, the more variables in a situation that you can control, the better chance you have of succeeding. If you are using this one technique but the world is chaos and that person who you're talking to, you don't know, are they hungry? Did they just have an argument with their husband? You don't know what's going on in their head but the more things you can take control of, the better for you, of course. And on stage, I can control basically everything in that room. Oh, the only thing that I don't know really what it is, is the thought processes of the person that I bring up on stage. But everything else I've already controlled. I've controlled the, the temperature, the light, where we are in the show, the music, all of that. So now I only have to focus on the thought process. That person has no idea what's going to happen, which means that they're very vulnerable. Sometimes he could be very, very blunt if you would just to give a very practical example, I'll get back to writing later because this isn't that interesting an example, but if I have like five objects on the table and I look you in the eyes and I say, just pick one, and I gesture with my hand towards one of the, the objects, chances are overwhelmingly that you will pick that object. 
because I wasn't looking at it, so it's sort of an off gesture, but I'm still giving it focus and saying, just pick one. And I'm showing you which one. Now that is one small thing, and it might sound silly, isolated, but if you do a couple of those things and you stack them onto each other, it will become almost impossible for you to not pick up that object that I wanted. You don't know what I'm going for, and therefore you don't know which techniques I'm gonna use, and I control the setting. Compared to in real life, of course, where, when you have to be use much more blunt methods to break through the noise. Now, writing or reading, maybe that is another very controlled setting. Sure, I, as a writer, I will not know where you are when you're reading this book. Are you going to be on a plane? Are you going to be in bed? Are you going to be alone or in a noise environment? But I do know which words you will inhale, and by using associative words, words that almost sound like something else, I can trigger sort of a subconscious thought process in your head by not talking about that, just doing it close enough so that will be somewhere in your head if I want to. I can have you say very clear of things that I don't want you to discover yet by using another language than the one you would associate with whatever it is I want you to stay clear of for the moment. And I'm very interested in how language and words work in the mind and how they trigger areas. And as a writer, you can use that. And as a mentalist, I think that's great fun. When I'm writing my crime trilogy now with, with Kevin Leckberg, those books, you know, they're set up as one big mentalist show, every single book, and also the entire trilogy is one big illusion. So I'm thinking very, very much about these things, how to not only have a proper code or a cipher or, or mystery for them to solve, but also how to fool the mind of the reader. I mean, I love knowledge. I love looking up stuff and learning about stuff. But for me, that doesn't make the world any less magical, mysterious, quite the opposite, actually. And I find, you know, whatever I read about, whether it be, I don't know, microbiology or research for the crime books, we stumble on so strange things, but, but they're all, it's all story and sparks, as you say, for, for further stories. The world is such an imaginative place. Every tool for influence can be used for both poor, good or bad. It's just about how you want to influence someone. If you want to influence someone's emotional state, you can make them sad, but you could also make them happy. If you want to give someone a positive experience, you're using the same tools. And again, most of the tools that I'm using even are tools that we are using on a day-to-day -day basis. But I guess if I wanted to guide someone through a, a positive experience and to bring them into a state of creativity, I would adjust their body posture, which I would do by first creating, as it's called, rapport with them. We're using sort of the same mod language, which means that when I change my idea, you will change yours. And then I will find something for us to laugh at because serotonin is amazing for the brain. For me as a mentalist, someone who tries to understand human behavior, cults have always been very interesting because there's such a distilled version of control. And for Camilla as a crime writer, of course, the setting of a cult is, you know, right with whatever you want to put in there. So she has always had a big interest in that as well. So for us, it was sort of natural that some part of the trilogy would be about cults because we also had, you know, quite a lot of knowledge about them from friends and, and so on. I've been interested in cults as long as I've been interested in human behavior, basically, because it is such a distilled version of the world in an evil way. We don't set out to say anything specific about the world and or society, and we're just happy. You know, you've bought a ticket, strap in, let's go for the ride. When it comes to arts or the understanding of arts, people need to develop enough to find that place where they understand it for themselves. And they could get into different things. It could be like my son playing jazz drums, like my oldest son being 
very, very invested in literature. But whatever gives you that sense of, of otherworldly pleasure that you can't really put into words because that is what arts do. So when I was a kid, a word like Asperger didn't exist. If it had, I would probably, you know, got a diagnosis, but I didn't. So I've always been very up in my head. That's why I couldn't properly read about language and do all those intuitive things because I was so rational, I was overthinking. And then when I was like 29, I saw my first ever live performance of modern dance because I'd never been to see a, a modern dance performance before. Why should I? And it hit me so hard because it communicated to me on a completely primal level. and It bypassed all my conscious analysis of whatever was happening on that stage and just became this emotional experience. And that is what art does for you. And that also gives you an understanding of the world and of existence that will be unique for you. You can question society, you can plant new thoughts and, and so on by using arts. But that raw experience is something that makes us uniquely human. So I think the arts are deadly important and whether they have a message or not. And I would love for people to continue to rediscover that and to give themselves enough time to discover that and not go, oh, I have an 11-year-old son and sometimes I want to show him a film or it could even be a 20-minute thing uh, that someone did that's on YouTube. And if he's not hooked in 10 seconds, his finger starts to move to the screen to start scrolling. And said, no, hang on, you wait. And he waits. And even though he gets might get immersed in a narrative, after like 15 minutes, he will still change it to something else. Like almost by instinct, by reflex. This has gone on long enough. That horrifies me because... If we don't give our mind enough time to process certain thoughts, we will never come to important realizations about ourselves and the world. So just understand things in general. It takes time. Time is one of the most important commodities we have, and we're wasting it because we assume that we don't have enough time. It's completely the other way around. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.